The kind of work we do echoes what's happening in Silicon Valley. So in the early years, it was sort of IoT, smart devices. Then it was sort of wearable technology devices, wrist-worn, rings. Then it was robotics now, it's trending. Drones were trending for a little while. You know, we work with a lot of startups. And to that regard, it's also a lot of education because many of them are young or they've never developed a hardware product before. And so you really have to walk them through sort of all the steps that are necessary to make the product successful. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin, and over the last 20 years, I've brought more than 500 companies to market with my agency, LMGPR. So I know a thing or two about a great story. On this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes with visionaries from an array of industries and philosophies who are shaping our world and our future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guest today, Tarek Abed, brings a skateboarder's cool vibe to whatever he does. You can see it in the sleek products he designs across a range of tech fields from ag tech to sports tech to health tech, even pet tech. You can feel it when you step into his headquarters at Mighty Studios in Silicon Valley, a place that calls to mind some of the hollowed rock music recording studios where the whole team is buzzing with creative energy. You can hear it in his voice when you get him talking about design. And of course, when the topic turns to his driving passion, skateboarding, which is what brings us here today. Tark skates to design and designs to skate. Today, we'll talk about design and that cool factor that Steve Jobs knew so well when he said, we made the buttons on the screen look so good, you'll want to lick them. Tark holds his own among the iconic product designers of our times. He got his start in the Silicon Valley design mecca of Palo Alto. Just down the street from Apple Computer and its flagship store, Stanford D School, where design thinking was born, and IDEO, the famous UX design firm. Growing up in the Bay Area was key to his outlook on design. Here's how it all started for Tark. I was born in Oakland. Both of my brothers were born in San Francisco, and we did some growing up there while my father was teaching at Berkeley. And ever since I was little, my brothers and I, we always sat around the table drawing cars, and then we started visualizing and conceiving things like spaceships and lots of sci-fi stuff. And as we got exposed to more and more of those movies, that became like sort of a passion of ours. And it turns out my older brother went to USC for a film school and a minor in fine arts. I, my younger brother is a creative writer. And so I ended up sort of in the middle there as an industrial designer. But I think that was very formative for me at a young age is to start to think about what does the future look like? When you draw a spaceship, well, does it have legs? Of course, it's got to land. Does it have fins? Well, it doesn't need to have fins because it's flying through space. You don't have aerodynamics. So a lot of this stuff was just kind of like churning in my brain as a young child. And of course, being part of that Star Wars era, the 70s, and seeing all of that burgeoning sci-fi material was just all fodder for me. What did your father teach at UC Berkeley? He was an economist, so he was teaching economics. So you and your brothers are super creative. Where do you get that? Do you get that creativity from your, your mother's side? Because economists can be you know, very exact <laughs> and precise and looking at things. And that also helps in design. But where did your creativities come from? Definitely from my mother's side. My mother's brother, our uncle, was a luthier. 
in Portland, Oregon, which is where both my mother and my uncle were born and raised and grew up. And he ended up having a great shop there where he built guitars and mandolins and violins and all sorts of stuff. So when we'd go visit them, I would go down to his workshop and he'd have all the woodworking tools, table saws and sanders and all this kind of stuff to make that. And that was another, that was very powerful for me to see that you could not just growing up drawing stuff, but then you could draw it and then you could make it. Right. And so that was very, very fascinating for me. And I love that. And so that kind of got me on this bug of making things with your hands, things that you visualize on paper could now become real. So you mentioned in one of the articles that I read about you in your early years, you, in addition to drawing uh, Legos and other tinkering things, like what kind of other activities were you into that maybe over time became more obvious that it was part of your destiny that you didn't realize at the time? Well, interestingly enough, when I was growing up in Berkeley, we had a neighbor, Kenny, who was a skateboarder. And that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to skateboarding. It was kind of this old style wooden deck with these really crude wheels. And he would fly around the streets without a shirt on, his long hair flowing. And I was just completely, I was just in love. I was like, that is like the, the greatest expression of freedom right there. And he actually taught me and my brothers how to skateboard. So I've been doing that ever since. And that's skateboarding has a lot of parallels to life. There's been a lot of talks on this and writing on it, and it's not a team sport. And you're using the streets, if you will, as your canvas to move around in that space. And it's just really interesting. I think those kind of things kind of go together, if you will. You know, new things under skateboard, failing, getting back up again, doing it differently, learning and moving forward. It's sort of a metaphor for life, but it's also a, a pretty powerful metaphor for the design process. Skateboarding forces you to kind of push those limits, push those boundaries and try new things and think about things in new ways that you hadn't conceived before. It's been said many, many times, you know, fail often, fail early, but it, failure is just another learning event, if you will, right? And it's just, it allows you to progress. You look at that thing that you did, didn't work exactly how you expected, you start to make changes and modify and, and then move on. So did you skate your way from high school then into college? Yeah, it took me a while actually to find out about the field of industrial design. After California, we traveled around and then ended up, I did some elementary, junior high and high school years in Washington, D.C., which is kind of back into the sort of conservative culture. So there wasn't really much of a skate culture. So I was kind of an outcast there. Did you transform that to skiing? I transferred that to snowboarding, of all things, because that was the closest proxy to skateboarding that I, and that was when snowboarding was in its infancy. So I had a close friend of mine that I grew up with and we started making our own snowboards. I think you saw one in our shop at the studio that I'd built when I was about 13. We used to take plywood, we'd soak it in hot water so that the laminations would get soft and we'd bend the nose up and then let it dry and polyurethane them. And we'd make them like every four or five days, we'd have a new model to test. And we go to the local hill and ride it down and crash and learn how to make a new one. In the end, we had like 12 or 15 of these weird shaped boards just because we didn't know what we were doing. So that was that was another interesting Your time. own X Games. Yeah. So what age were you when you were doing that? I want to say about 13 was when, when all that was going on. Wow. Yeah. So your brother's in college. Does he come back and influence you and introduce you to design in some capacity? Or what triggered that? He did. So he managed to convince my conservative parents that he wanted to go to film school. And that was like a big to do, but they allowed it. And 
during that time, they have to make these short films for their classes and so forth. And they have to start working with other disciplines. And one of the disciplines that he would work with was these, you know, set designers and prop designers. And it turned out a lot of them came over from Cal State Long Beach, the Long Beach Industrial Design Program. In fact, many of the early creatives for the Star Wars films came from Cal State Long Beach, Joe Johnston and many others. And so he said, hey, you know, Tark, he knew, he knew what I like to do. He said, hey, you know, I just learned about this thing called industrial design. And there's a couple of schools out here. You know, why don't you come out on spring break and we'll have a look? And I'm like, oh, that sounds really awesome. So the next spring break, I left, flew out to California, stayed with him, and we toured Cal State Long Beach. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. You know, I was like, this, this is what I want to do. And it was all the stuff. So the hallways were covered with these beautiful hand marker renderings of products. They had a model shop. They had all the tools there, the vacuum form machine, milling machines, lathes, all the stuff to make things. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is what I was meant to do. So uh, dropped out of the college that I was currently in, moved all the way out to California the next year and started at Cal State Long Beach. What did you discover about yourself that maybe you didn't know that you just kind of unearthed by being in that environment you just described? Well, I think fundamentally there was formality behind what I'd been doing my entire life. You know, it's like there was a there's a discipline there and there was a process, too, which was also fascinating, which included this whole thing about prototyping, experimenting, failing, learning from that experience and moving forward. And so that was really powerful for me to see that all that and to be part of that. Now, when I first moved to Long Beach, yes, I had to take some GE courses and there were some preparatory courses in order to get into the design program, three-dimensional design, graphic design. You could elect to take interior design courses. And that's all set up so that you build a portfolio of material so that when you're ready to apply to the design program, you can present that material to the professors and the staff there, and they, they would decide whether it pass fail, you can come into the program. Then once you got in, it was a two-year program from there. Very intense, but super exciting and super fun. I absolutely loved that time. So what was in your portfolio? Give us a snapshot of what kind of things that you designed or illustrated that were part of your portfolio to get in. Because I know it's very competitive in design schools, and oftentimes the work is like near professional quality, right, to get into these programs. It is, yeah. So the some of the preparatory work taught you how to render products realistically. You know, you've probably seen some of those renderings. Nowadays, We, of course, we use computer and software to do all that. We just take the, the CAD model that you're working with and bring it into a rendering program, and, and you can assign all these things. But, but then... You had to do all that by hand. You had to find the right color marker. You had to write. The, you had to find the right in line to create part lines and reveals. And you had to draw screws in by hand and all this kind of stuff. So that was one, and that that's absolutely crucial in your ability to do rapid visualization. Then also demonstrating you have the ability to think in three D space because you know what you draw on paper is not often what exactly is represented in three dimensional space. Sometimes the proportions are off, or sometimes it's the way the light falls on an edge. You're like, oh man, I need to soften this corner or I need to do something different here. And so building things with your hands was absolutely crucial. So kind of all of those things coming together was what was required to get in. Was there a school project that, that just made you feel even more enamored? Yeah, I think so. The program was two years, but it was very intense. And you do many projects during that time. But the last project, which was your senior project, was really the main showpiece. You spent an entire semester doing it. And that was sort of the culmination of all the stuff that you'd learned previously. So I had taken a, a world health class the previous semester, and I learned about impoverished communities in rural parts of the world, developing countries and their lack of access to vaccines and medication and so forth. And I said, well, 
maybe for my senior project, I want to do something that kind of addresses those concerns. So what I ended up doing was I made this sort of hard shell backpack that healthcare workers could wear and they could ride on a moped or they could use it to hike up into these remote regions of the world to give these small villages their vaccines and so forth. Because many of those are inaccessible by roads, right? You can't drive a Jeep up there, which is how they normally do it. These little mopeds and motorbikes, you could get up so far, but then you'd have to walk miles and miles and miles to get in there. At the same time, I was researching and learning about different ways to refrigerants, things to cool the vaccines, because, right, you're traveling from a plane to a Jeep to a motorbike to hiking. So you need to keep the stuff cool. And so I learned about this cooling technology. I also learned about what are the required things that medical professionals need to initiate the vaccine. They need to weigh the baby. They need to know its blood type. They need to do all the vitals and all this kind of stuff. So when the healthcare worker got to the village, the backpack would deploy and it was a hard shell backpack and it snapped into this sort of L-shaped position and a little scale folded out of it so you could weigh the baby. It had slots for all of the vaccines and their little thermal cooling box. And then because needles are very transmissive in terms of, and you don't want to reuse them and so forth, I ended up using a what they call a jet injector, which is what the military uses for lots, when they're doing lots and lots and lots of shots on soldiers and so forth. And it's a way to push the, the vaccine into the skin. And I actually designed sort of a hand pump model, almost like a bike pump. So no technology, no batteries, it would all be safe and deployable. And so that was, that kind of was the crowning achievement of my design education there. Turned out that years later, the the dean of the school had a little showcase and, and it was displayed in, in there. So I felt very honored that it made it there as a showpiece for the design program. You just described something that I think is so important for people to understand is that the intricacies and the conduct of thinking that you're challenged with in trying to solve in this scenario, all these elements that you put together and to come out with a solution, I think is something that people as as consumers, we have high expectations when we buy something, right? And we just assume it's that way because that's just the way it is. But there's so much that's put into that. So you come out of school and you take us through your say, first 10 years in in design, and then how that led ultimately up to Mighty, which is your studio. Sure. So graduated Long Beach. And at that time, all of the great firms were up in the Bay Area. So IDEO, Matrix, ID2, Frog Design, the list goes on. GVO was one of those at the time that was one of the premier firms. And I ended up getting a job there as a junior designer. And so moved up and and worked there for about four years. And at that time, fantastic learning experience, got to work on all kinds of new technologies, early laptop design, tablet computers, cleaning equipment, both commercial and consumer grade stuff, all sorts of things. It was super exciting. And then for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to quit and start a design consultancy. So at a very young age and a very junior level. What year is that? That was, oh my gosh, that would have been like late 90s, I believe. The dot-com era. Yeah. So I, actually, I went to work for, actually, I left GVO after about four years. And then I went to Tonic Industrial Design, which was another smaller firm. It was run by Gavin Ivester, amazing designer. He's He's gone on to work with Adidas and Nike, Bang & Olufsen. Now he's at Cisco. Amazing. So I worked there for a couple of years, and then he closed the firm to go to work for the big shoe manufacturers up north. And I said, well, I got to do something. So that's when I started Thumbnail Design, which is my own first consulting firm. And Sean Hanna, who is somebody that I met, worked with at GVO, we partnered up and did that. 
And uh, we ran that for a couple of years. I mean, we we had no idea what we were doing. It was all just sort of just learning and going and trying, writing proposals for the first time, managing projects, trying to do sales, business development, all that kind of stuff. So that was very exciting. But we had, we were so small and we just weren't making enough revenue to grow. But at the same time, we were working and partnering with engineering firms. And Spec was one of them. We had such a great working relationship that after a couple of years, they said, hey, we'd like to acquire you. <laughs> so we're like, okay, that works. We need to grow in mechanical engineering and you guys need to grow in industrial design. So that's what started the, the Spec relationship there. And that was fantastic. And in the early years when we first joined, there was only about 12 people and we were in downtown Palo Alto at a great, cool little spot, lots of activity. And I absolutely loved and adored the company when it was that small. I remember going past the building and just going, oh, that's spec. Everyone in the Valley knew spec. I mean, it was just, it was like the magic factory, right? You just knew cool things were coming out of there. Yeah. And and they have a, they had a pedigree of sort of like generating intellectual property and trying to spin it off as, as either new projects or new products, sort of speculative work. And eventually they made spec products, which is the iPhone, cell phone, tablet case company that eventually they successfully sold to Samsonite years later. But I kind of vibed on that whole thing too, was this sort of like, okay, we do all this work for clients. What would it be like if we do this for ourselves, take ourselves through this process and us be on the other side of the fence? So that was really interesting. And so I ended up starting Mighty Studios in 2015. It was hard to leave because it was such a great organization, but I knew it was time to kind of branch off. And I said, well, you know, it's going to be tough. The area is saturated with industrial design firms. I got to set myself up to start thinking about other things too, like doing our own products. And so if you recall, we started the KPAC project when Mighty first started. We took on some consulting work. And so we've just kept that vibe going, that same early spec vibe, if you will, just openness, transparency, hyper-creativity, super talented people. When you do walk into our studio, you just feel the energy, right? You feel that turbocharged sort of, wow, there's some, there's some great people here. And that's that's sort of the environment that I was trying to create. And you revamped an old gas station. So you upcycled your space that you're in, which I think is super cool. So you've created this beautiful space and you're kind of curious, like what's going on behind those doors? But you're also in this super vibrant part of San Jose in the Silicon Valley. And it's like something is happening here and your clients are around the world and so you have a a lot of things to consider someone comes in and they open up their coat and they're like hey cool idea inspector gadget and you have to stand you look at it and being totally objective to like well i don't know do we need another spork what is your discovery process how do you decide that yes i'm going to take on this challenge in the multitude of markets that you work in which include consumer tech and medical and agriculture and what array of markets are you challenged with and what is your discovery process with these opportunities? Yeah, fundamentally, the kind of work we do echoes what's happening in Silicon Valley, right? So in the early years, it was sort of IoT, smart devices. Then it was sort of wearable technology devices, wrist-worn, rings, robotics now is trending. Drones were, were trending for a little while. So really, the kind of work we do is sort of parallel to what's happening. And, and, you know, we work with a lot of startups. And to that regard, it's also a lot of education because many of them are young or they've never developed a hardware product before. And so you really have to walk them through sort of all the steps that are necessary to make the product successful. I will say that we do get asked a lot of times with 
customers who haven't had any experience developing hardware products, there's they'll call, maybe it's, a, uh, it's an inventor or a small early startup. They'll say, oh, we just need to get to a prototype. I'm thinking in my head, man, well, that's just the first third of one third of all of the things you need to do to bring a product to market. And so, you know, I have to kind of like keep myself from explaining all that because there's kind of three chunks. To bring a product to market, you've got R&D, you've got manufacturing, and then sales distribution marketing. So when somebody comes and says, oh, I just need to get to a prototype, I have <laughs> like, well, that's, that's great, but you got to think about what you're going to do from there. And so in many cases, that gets them to some sort of funding milestone. In other cases, that's good enough for a sort of a crowdfunding campaign, either with Indiegogo or Kickstarter. So, you know, you really have to talk them through and educate them on what the total complete process is in order to start selling and marketing a successful product. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Vitaly Ghalom, a leading voice in mobility who's taking the knowledge he's gained from his days as a scrappy entrepreneur to now investing, mentoring, and developing startups in the mobility space. I spent some time as a VC, and even though before that all the knees on my jeans were worn out from begging for money as an entrepreneur, I was on the other side of the table, and, and you really build up a filter and a truffle nose for what's special, what's fundable, and what rings the right bells and is the right flags, not the red flags. So now I'm an investment banking partner where I focus on finding kind of diamonds in the rough more so than other investment bankers because I have this builder, operator, investor background. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So let's talk about some of the things that you've worked on. Going from your early years, some of the companies you've worked on with products. I mean, there's some real marquee names on your list from Volkswagen and Google and Fisher-Price. I mean, what, what are you most proud of? When I was at Spec, we got approached by Cisco. They were opening a new business unit called the Telepresence Business Unit. And Telepresence then was sort of a very complicated thing. It was in its infancy. The only other competitor that actually had a, a product that was remotely similar was the HP Halo. And this was, so Telepresence means putting a bunch of screens in a room, getting people around a table. And it's as if the people at the far end, who could be thousands and thousands of mile, miles away, are all are visually and auditorily, it would appear that they are in the same room, right? So that's that. If you've done a good job with a telepresence system, then you've achieved that. So Cisco came to us then at Spec, and unlike the HP Halo, which was it was a whole, you had to just tear down a whole room and build it with all this custom equipment and so forth, pulling permits getting all these approvals. You had to have a great deal of power brought into the building and so on. Cisco wanted to have it just be a drop-in piece for a standard size conference room. And they gave us some really good constraints. That was a really exciting process. So we worked with these amazing acoustics engineers, video engineers. We even worked with, with a, a Hollywood movie director on the best type of lighting to create this environment that was comfortable. I mean, there's one way to do this, which is like, okay, just create a Hollywood movie set where you've got all these lights and all these kinds of things, but that's not how we have meetings. If you think about the last meeting you had in a conference room, there were no 
lights and there were no cameras staring you in the face. So we just did this amazing system for them, met and exceeded all of their requirements. And actually out of that came a ton of intellectual property, not just the physical stuff, but also the technology side. So that was one thing that I was really excited about. It was a long program, about a year and a half, but out of it came this beautiful product and it ended up being used on movies and TV shows because it was, it was so cool and fluid. So if we didn't have that, would we have a Zoom today? Well, this was pre-Zoom. Then it was mostly copper lines, but now it's optical, thousands of miles away, HD resolution, spatial audio sound at the other end with zero latency. And that's a, that's a really hard feat to do, but the engineers at Cisco did it really well. And so to create that experience that you were almost in the same room together, it's pretty amazing. And so that one was a huge project. It was super exciting and tons of innovation, tons of learning. That was one in particular that I thought was really groundbreaking work. So we talked a little bit about something that you created for the medical field, which is fascinating. And then what you just described for more of the, the business and communications world. What about agricultural as a hot market? And you have a number of things you're working on in that space. We're going into a new era of agriculture. We've talked about it on the show, about you know, sustainability and electrification. What are you contributing to that market? That seems to be one of the hot markets here in, in not just Silicon Valley, but worldwide now. Yeah, ag tech companies, Bay Area, need hardware solutions. In the past, we've done work. We've done moisture sensors, valve controls for big farms, for high-value crops like wine grapes, almonds, strawberries, and so forth. It's critical for farmers to know that certain areas of their land are getting watered properly or draining adequately so the plant life is healthy. We're also doing work with a robotic, an indoor robotic grow company. We've done a great little cool little project, which is a, a robot that drives around greenhouses, photographs and documents the, the plants there all autonomously. So it would just go around, illuminate the, the plant life, bed plants, and then report that data to a dashboard on the farmer's computer. So lots of different things lots of different applications. And there's a, there's a lot going on in this space with laser-guided weed and pest control systems that are, that are out there. It's fascinating. So I understand how you get into the mind of the idea, the idea, you know, maker, engineer, whoever you're collaborating with. How do you get into the mindset of a robot and knowing what, <laughs> the functionality of a robot and what it needs to do? I imagine that requires you to really be quick study and, and understanding of artificial intelligence and tasks and things like that. That's true. This is less of an emotional purchase than, say, an Apple Watch or a Mont Blanc pen. And so really, it's just understanding the functional constraints and putting it together in a package that, in this case, easy to assemble, easy to service, easy to deploy. You know, these are the, these are the key concerns of those stakeholders that actually purchase that type of product. So making it robust making it waterproof, dustproof. These kinds of concerns are, are paramount when you're working with these kinds of products. That's really important because millennials and Zoomers relate to products differently than boomers and who knows what the next ones are going to be related to. How do you design for that, these different consumer demographics? Because I imagine that's a core factor. Yeah, that's a great point. So case in point, so if we don't know enough about the market and if the client can't provide us the information that we need, we have ethnographic researchers that will go out and do that. So that'll be the at the very front end of the working relationship or the process. We'll go out and do that. And so that's when we'll go out into the field, we'll talk to farmers. Or if we're designing a uh, technology wearable for seniors, we'll go to 
assisted living facilities or people that are aging in place and learn about their habits and behaviors and their pain points and so forth. And it's only after you do that and you compile that data that you start to see patterns emerge. And that's a really exciting part of the process. And it's actually really fun to be an industrial designer on those. I just generally shadow. I don't ask questions. We let our research team do that. But in my head, as I'm watching all this stuff, I'm coming up with ideas. And so you can see how that process really feeds into the industrial design process, right? So now you're starting to establish those constraints. Now you're starting to see, oh, there's a pain point that we need to resolve, or there's an issue with this, or maybe it's a a complication with an existing product that they're already using that we need to make better. So that's how we generally connect with markets that we don't know too much about. That's a cool job. I want that job. (laughs) New career. So let's talk about materials and some of the things that you're using today in terms of sustainability. You and I grew up in the generation where we use generation plastic, I like to call it, with plastic bottles, plastic straws, and all these things that we don't want in landfill and we don't want in the ocean. What's new in the design space? What, what types of new materials or approaches are you practicing or will be in the near future that we'll maybe be seeing in our next phone or backpack or even skateboard? Wow. Well, I wish we were farther along in that <laughs> process, but most everything, and it's it's slightly depressing, most everything that is manufactured is either made with injection molded plastic, die casting, sheet metal fabrication techniques, and it's very difficult to get away from that. And there are emerging bioplastics that are being used, and we've worked on projects like this before. And one of the things you learn about it is that managing the end of life for bioplastics is actually kind of a challenge. For example, we were working on some accessories for hotel chains, which was like a little loofah sponge and some slippers. You know, you go into a hotel and you get those really terrible terry cloth slippers that don't fit anybody very well. We were going to replace those with some compostable rubber slippers. So at the end of life, If they threw them away, they would go into the compost pile and safely go into the earth and decompose. Now, the issue with that is not all hotels have commercial composting available to them. So then they go into landfill. And if that particular plastic gets into an incinerator, the smoke from that and the off-gassing is worse than, than if you just threw away a pair of regulars. So it's a multifaceted problem. And when we start to talk about these safe materials and so forth, that you need to understand that there's a bigger part of that equation, which is sort of what happens at the end. Using reclaimed materials is easy, right? We can get post-consumer waste percentage of this in this particular plastic, but it's, it's, it's really a challenge. But I will say that since I've been doing this professionally, that we have really focused more and more, at least in the last decade or so, on the quality and longevity of the product right? It used to be that things were kind of disposable. Nowadays, that's not a thing, unless you have a good eco story behind it or a material that allows it to be. So what excites you the most now? Every year, the Consumer Electronics Show showcases the next coolest stuff. You know, what are you so excited about in terms of either category or products that we should be looking for from coming out of the Mighty Studios? One of the things that came into my mind as we were talking was uh, we're working on a, a robotic food vending machine, right, that, that can do things like, you know, kava, sweet cream and uh, chipotle type meals from pre-assembled ingredients and put them into a, a consumer ready thing. And soon we won't even need spatulas, we won't even need an oven, we'll have these robots in our house making all our food. <laughs> so, 
Well, I remember episodes of Pink Panther would cut out like out of a magazine or a newspaper, and then he'd put it on the skillet, and he would come out and he'd eat it. We're kind of in that era, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of the future things that we saw as kids growing up, they're they're happening now. But you also designed something I think is really cool and and quite simple but functional. And I I have too this skateboard holder. Oh sure, the parking block skateboard stand. Yeah. I mean, that's talk about simplicity and form and function, but you not only design for others, but you successfully have brought some of your own products to market and branded them. That's Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the first one, which we just talked about, was the uh, parking block skateboard stand. So that was one of my first clients when I started Mighty Studios. It was a father-son team. Son was a skateboarder, and they said, hey, you know, we're tired of having his boards all over the house. We want to make like a little stand or a parking spot for his skateboard. I don't want to, when I said, leave the door, come in the door. I don't want to trip over it. So we went through this brief exercise, that, you know, and I'm a skater, so I know this these pain points as well, and came up with this little tiny sort of cubic plastic thing. They stack and nest. So in a retail environment, you can put a ton of them on a shelf. Very inexpensive to make, very durable, has a little storage spot for greasy tools and wheels and so forth. And so we ended up designing and engineering that and getting that to production for that father-son team. They ended up selling it on Amazon and doing pretty well for a while, but kind of just struggled with maintaining interest in that. And a couple of years ago, the founder came into Mighty Studios and says, hey, Tark, you know, we're doing this thing. We need your help. We're not making the money that we want. And we have this other product that we introduced and it's not doing so well. So we ended up cleaning up their Amazon Seller Central account, which is the platform that if you're going to sell something on Amazon, you have an Amazon Seller Central account. So we got that all set up and got the pricing right where there was finally turning a profit. We fixed the other product that was uh, not quite complete and started selling that successfully on on Amazon. He said, hey, you're doing such a great job. I'll make you a majority partner in this company, which was fantastic because myself being a skateboarder, passionate about this particular product. And so now we're introducing, this year we'll be introducing another product that hangs on a door so that you can store your skateboard on there. So our whole deal with that one is that damage-free, you don't need to screw anything into a wall. It's all self-supporting stuff to put your skateboard somewhere. Then the other project, a longtime friend of mine and I were, were just kind of brainstorming ideas. This was early in the pandemic. And one of the biggest complaints was with using Zoom because everybody was sheltering in place and having to do work meetings, even family meetings and personal meetings on Zoom. And you're constantly having to run around parts of your because you couldn't go to the workplace. So now you get these situations where behind you is a very bright window and I can't see your face. And so we said, oh, well, let's make a little light that clips onto your laptop that helps people illuminate their face so you can see their emotional reaction when you're talking to them. So that was Zoomy. And we did an Indiegogo campaign, very successful, pre-sold about 5,000 units. That allowed us to get the movement and headway that we needed to start selling it on Amazon. And so that's been going successfully for about a little over a year. And so, yeah, that was interesting because that was kind of like, okay, we're on the other side of the fence. Rather than our clients having to negotiate with contract manufacturers and work with electrical engineers, we had to do that. And it's a completely different thing <laughs> than telling somebody else how to do it than doing it yourself. What do you take to the skateboard park to these younger kids that maybe you could influence a next generation designer or, as you said, the philosophies of life and skateboarding? How do you teach that? 
Well, that's interesting. I mean, I must say skate culture has changed over the last (laughs) 30 years. When I was younger, oh man, it was scary to even go near teenagers or young adults that were skateboarding. They always seemed very menacing and threatening. And uh, that's kind of how it was for a while. And it had this, you know, stigma of like, oh, skaters are kind of these like menacing punks. But then, you know, doing it yourself and growing up with that, you realize that we're all just just people. But I think the thing is that with the younger community, when I go to the skate park, there's tons of young kids either there with their dads or with friends. And it's amazing. Those kids are learning at a rate that is vastly uh, more accelerated than, than because they have access to YouTube, how-to videos, tips and tricks. And so they just flip open their phone and like, oh, I want to learn how to do a heel flip today. And they can do it. <laughs> like, I've been skating for, I don't know, 40, 50 years and I still can't do it. But anyway. Do you think you design to skate or do you skate to design? Wow, that's a, or both. That's a heavy question. I, yeah, I think <laughs> I, they influence each other in, in very deep and meaningful ways that I will, I'm going to say, I think that they're just, they're, it's both. It really is. So Tark, can you talk about the future of industrial design and what role you think it will play designers in shaping our world in the future? Products aren't going to disappear, but they will take, I think, a little bit more of a backseat to some newer technologies, right? So you think about everything now has a display on it. We're starting to get into things like gestural inputs and things to control devices. And so what I'm interested to see unfold over the next few years is like as things get, technologies get more miniaturized, more dense, like where they end up. Right. Are we going to have smart clothing? Are we going to have, you know, now now we have smart jewelry and smart watches, but what else could that be? Right. And what are the behaviors and and things that are consumer behaviors that are responding to that? And and what are the needs? Those other those are things that I just don't know yet. I mean, we can postulate and think about, but those are things that I'm eager to learn more about. It was so fun to talk to Tark and absorb some of his cool. But if you really want to experience what Tark and Mighty Studios are all about, head over to their website at mighty-studios.com. You'll be wowed by the dozens of products showcased there. From health tech, an anti-gravity treadmill for physical therapy and athletic performance, automated thawing devices for gene therapy, to ag tech, a greenhouse robot, moisture sensors, and valve controls. And to pet tech, a smart outdoor cat house, connected pet collars, and more. And of course, that rad skateboard stand that I personally have in my garage. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.